So Mary, I have this really exciting opportunity that I feel like you're going to want to be in on the ground floor for. Okay, I'm listening. Do you remember how there were special Christmas Barbies when we were coming of age and now they're worth a lot of money? Yes, I mean, of course, you know, most of my personal wealth is tied up in Kohl's cash and 1990s Barbie dolls. Obviously. So I think we need to buy about 10 to 15 to possibly 50 of the $5,000 Swarovski Crystal (laughs) Holiday American Girl dolls. I think, I mean, do we have that kind of cash on hand is a question that we should think about, but I refuse to. And I'm just going to say yes. I'm going to let my emotions lead the way. Answer is yes. I think what Kirsten would do is she would want us to go through a blizzard to achieve our dreams, no matter how reckless. And then hide them in a cave and, you know, just move on with our lives and, you know, light some candles and do it. I love it. So let's get our checkbooks ready. Welcome, everybody. This is American Girls, the podcast where we're reliving the American Girl series book by book. I'm Mary. I am once again, Allison. Still Allison. And here we are. Here we are with book three of Kirsten. Um, Kirsten's surprise. It's no longer a surprise how much we have come to appreciate and love Kirsten, but I still feel like there was a lot of angles that took me aback. You know, I just said to you off air, this book is a Leo's paradise because it's like there's emotions, 110%. People are just living out loud all across this book. This book has the iconic Kirsten visual that you're probably thinking of, which is the beautiful long white dress, the braids that are tied up into buns. She has the beautiful wreath on her head and my personal dream, which is wearing candles. This is a literal fire hazard. I love it so much. This is your dream. And I know you've fallen asleep in your house with candles lit. And then I worry for the rest of the evening. So, you know, I know this really hits you where you live, like almost literally. I'm going to have to like not only watch you to keep you from cutting your own bangs, but also to keep you from like, I guess, like recreationally wearing candles. I think when a young Katy Perry was allowed to periodically check out books that weren't evangelical, given her upbringing, I think this is one of the books that she took out of the library and she was like, guess what, Kirsten, the next surprise, baby, you're a firework. (laughs) 110%. She imagined a different way that this book might go, which would be Kirsten like literally taking off after wearing these candles for an extended period of time. I do like to imagine Katy Perry is like the natural segue from Kirsten's childhood. It's like, of course, if you grow up at Kirsten, you turn into a Katy Perry. I feel like a lot of things have been a dumpster fire lately, but then I hear things like Kelly Clarkson is getting a Vegas residency, and it's like, I actually think we're going to make it to 2020. You know, and Mariah Carey's still out here doing her public service work, you know, not acknowledging time and rebuking it. And it's like, that's what keeps me going. That's what keeps me getting out of bed in the morning. I feel like we'll look back and realize she was one of the smartest people to ever live on this planet. I think she's a genius. Not kidding. And I also am still listening to that Dolly Parton podcast. And thank you to everyone who has been sliding into my DMs to ask me how I feel about it. You probably got more than you bargained for. But somebody on that described her as like our Mozart, that she's a genius. And I was like, yeah, obviously. See, I actually take issue with that because I feel like Mozart probably wasn't as cool. Oh, like, but honestly, no one's as cool. You know what I'm saying? If you recall on our liberal arts journey, I took a very intense class called Mozart and His World, in which I learned that I had no auditory learning skills and I kept failing the quizzes because I literally couldn't listen and comprehend. (laughs) And I had to go to the 
professor and he was like, you're acing the history part of the class and you're actually like, you're failing the music part. I was like, this is not connecting in my brain. But he kind of did a Mariah Carey and he was like, we'll figure it out. I took a class for that Common Core that was a um, global music class. And the professor literally was like, you have to pick a world music tradition and give a presentation. And I was like, no problem. This was a summer school class, I should say, by the way. So it was like very loosey-goosey. And I was working there during the day. And he kind of, everyone was like picking whatever country they were interested in. So like, I'm like considering all these options. And he just turned to me and he was like, your name is Mary Margaret Mahoney. So like, obviously you'll be doing Ireland. And I'm like, uh, okay, like no problem. And then my presentation was I made everyone go to a bar. And the next thing I know, he's like up on stage with the band playing the spoons. Like I did get an A, but like, wow, what a ride. Was your professor Toby Keith? (laughs) (laughs) Ew, excuse me? No way. I would have dropped the class. But um, yeah, it was quite a time, quite a time in my life. But, you know, Allison, I just want to make you aware of, like, some other things going on in my life right now. And some of them do involve TV shows I'm pursuing on YouTube that I would love to ask our listeners to join me on. You're shaking your head right now, but, like, you know, this is real. You were just returning from a trip minding your own business. And, you know, I did have to text you in the airport and say, like, I need you to turn to go on YouTube and search 1940s house right now. This is an amazing show. So let me back up. I found this show because I was trying to find Frontier House, which is a PBS show from the year 2002, question mark, where three um, privileged white families had dysfunction in their personal lives and decided the only logical solution to their family dynamic issue was to take it to the prairie and live like it was 1888. I love this show. Um, So I don't think I could because of my hygiene requirements as a person. Also, medically, I feel like I'd be dead. So like, but I mean, those things aside, maybe, I don't know. I don't think so. But we were watching part of it on YouTube. It's not completely there. But, you know, YouTube suggests things to you. So then Anna was like, oh, my God, there's this show I watched that's set in London. It was filmed in the year 2000. And a family lives like it's 1940s Britain for nine weeks. It is bonkers. And I highly recommend it. One the, the mom at one point just casually says, like, things got dicey when they ran out of cigarettes, basically. And she was like, look, I smoked when I was pregnant. So you can imagine, like, this isn't going to stop me. I will find a way. <laughs> it's and But there is a show on Prime. So Frontier House is not fully available. But there's another show I'll be dipping into that I encourage our listeners to check out. I have not seen it yet, as I said. But I am going to watch it called Pioneer Quest. And it's the Canadian version of Frontier House, and it is available on Amazon Prime, I'm seeing. So, you know, Allison, I did message you in the airport. And I was like, look, I understand you're between flights. Like, you're traveling. No excuse. Need you to watch this. I did immediately Google it, and I put it in my queue. I kind of went on my own journey of I wasn't living like it was 1940s Britain, but I was reliving post-war Britain because I just watched season two of The Crown because wow. I knew you I finally have, you finally did it. I couldn't have a lot of time elapsed between season two and season three. I needed it to be a tight timeline. Yes. And I'm reading a bio of Princess Margaret right now that's like completely out of pocket, but it's like we need to be doing this work right now. This is what needs to be happening. I mean, I think these people are actually giving me a good vibe check on my own life where it's like, yes, I am spending my early 30s returning to childhood books and talking about them with you on a podcast. I am not getting rid of my modern convenience and sanitary napkins to go live on a frontier. Oh, my God. There is a scene where they make one of the women model a tampon, basically. 
from 1888 and there's a woman who you will absolutely love because it's basically you in 50 years but she's like look i have done all the research on the material culture she's like giddy she was like you know like we do know that you'll need a menstruation napkin and she was like i found one and she's like you stand up put it on right now and the woman's like why me and then she awkwardly is like and i'll throw you a pig skin if you want a condom and they're like ah like it's crazy <laughs> and then long story short anna i made anna look these people up and they're all divorced now so like it didn't really work out on frontier house per se but nonetheless i will be pursuing it and i hope other people do too that's also the only plot line i remember from the other british program in which people lived as victorians and edwardians where one of them wanted to go swimming and after they went through the whole kind of hassle of putting on proper swimming attire, they learned that they wouldn't be able to use any modern sanitary conveniences. And this was like one of the young women's breaking points. That would have been mine. And, and on Frontier House, the first episode, they're told that there's no toilet paper. And that's when things go sideways. The women seem to be most upset about not being able to bring makeup. And to me, it's like, okay, what about toilet paper? And actually, there's one single guy who's a school teacher, and he seems actually very sane, and I believe he is still married. But um, his fiance is going to join him like a month into it, and they actually get married on the prairie on the show. And I keep thinking, like, how is this going to work? I mean, as you know, I'm planning a wedding. Of course. And, you know, it's like, I can't have a wedding that's like 1888 conditions. Like, did I inadvertently choose the anniversary of D-Day as my wedding date? Yes. I don't think it's inadvertent. What do you mean? I think it's important because I think it's a beautiful pun. Like I do day. I think it's I think it's great. <gasps> okay, Allison. Um, this is unplanned, but you know, I need to ask you a question. Oh my god, what? I'm excited. So, you know, my other TV love is Grey's Anatomy and like when people need to ask people important questions in life, they ask them in like really over the top ways like building people a, a house of candles. Yes. And you know, like I know you love candles. I could have done that for you, but like I'm afraid of open that many open flames in this apartment. But, you know, I just need to know, you know, I'm getting married on D-Day. I'm preparing not to take any prisoners, but I will be taking vows. And I need someone by my side who can, you know, handle everything that might come my way. So I just need to know, like, will you be my maid of honor? Of course. Like, I'm there on the amphibious landing, and I will share that obnoxious meme that's like, <laughs> they had a day at the beach, so you could have a day at the beach. That oh, my God. Me. I just like I was trying to think about how to ask you because I know like I reject 99% of the wedding industrial complex but I feel like there's this pressure now to like prom pose to people which was not even I mean first of all I never went to my prom and like no one would have asked me anyway but like also I did not propose marriage to anyone so it's like my heart is pounding right now like I'm so stressed out like I I don't know if I thought you were gonna say no but it's like this is stressful (laughs) Not only do I say yes, I will not get a haircut in the months surrounding your big day. <laughs> no bang, no bang self haircuts for a month I previous. Promise. Although I, I think like you, I actually want to empower you to do whatever makes you feel safe, but also just like, please don't do that to yourself. I love it. For no, your of own course. sake. I don't know what it's going to be. I like, I have no plans. I'm going to post some ridiculous images I saw in this Oriental trading wedding catalog that my mom gave us that's like... You have to know your color story. You have to know your napkin story. And it's like, (laughs) what? 
Okay, but I don't know. Colors do set a mood, and I feel like nobody knows that better than Kirsten. Like, no one worked a limited wardrobe and single red ribbon better than that girl, and you could learn something. I I could learn something? You think I should have, like, a St. Lucia-themed wedding? No, because it's not topically appropriate or seasonally appropriate, but I do think you could learn something from, like, the way that she was scrappy and inventive in pulling together a very good event. Okay, but see, I'm doing that because I'm bringing you on. Of course. You know yeah, what I'm saying? It's like you are like a cruise director in training, like an event, a low-key event planner. I get really stressed out and I have no interest in that. I'll just divulge that the day that you planned a surprise bridal shower for me, I had been kept from our shared favorite dining establishment, which was Wendy's, because I didn't know that you were holding me back so that I could eat at this event. And you basically held me over with a shared bag of Doritos And I turned to you and I laid out these like biting criticisms of people who previously had not paid their fair share for pizza and then literally opened the door to a surprise bridal shower in my honor. That was one of the most stressful days of my life. As I said, I'm not a wedding person. I actively have like, like if somebody invites me to a shower, I'm always like, can I like give blood that day? Can I do anything? Can I get jury duty? Something. And, you know, obviously, like, I love you a lot. So when you get mar- when you were getting married, I was like, I'm going to throw her a shower that's like what you would want. So I made something. I had somebody come in a bustle dress, a friend of ours. I had a game that was called Allison or Alva, which was quotes from both you and Alva Vanderbilt. And people had to guess who said what. Surprisingly, I didn't think it was that hard to tell, but some of the guests had a struggle a lot of the quotes were about her marrying for money and people kept identifying those as me yeah one of the quotes is um marry first for money then for love and literally half the people there were like oh allison said that (laughs) totally (laughs) seriously you do know i'm pursuing a vocation that pays me thirteen thousand dollars a year correct but people are like well this all tracks with what we know about our financial situation here and allison's lifestyle but you were so actively hangry beforehand i had literally had like signs all over the building that were like pretending our building was like marble house or something in newport and you were so like we need to go to wendy's right now and i'm like look normally i'm totally down like this is fine i remember buying you a mini bag of doritos and it was like basically like will this tide you over and i think i was like low-key like i'll have one so it seems like i'm also (laughs) hungry but i'm really just like very stressed out right now wow that was quite a time i've thrown i've thrown like if I throw you a shower, it will like make absolutely no sense or it's not going to happen, basically. It would be a punishment to throw a shower that's like a traditional shower. Like I either have to have a game where I compare you to a historical figure and have people there in costume or it's like probably not going to happen. Like in the parlance of Golden Girls, if Kirsten threw a party, would you go? Um, hmm. I don't know. I mean, really? it, I mean, I don't know, Allison. It's like this book was weird I don't know like I have a lot of feelings about this book and I know that you're like super into it and I am too but she's also like low-key not even low-key kind of high-key annoying sometimes and we'll get into why like there's a lot about how we invest memory in material objects in this book in really interesting ways there's a lot about the Saint Lucia holiday Swedish culture, what it's like to celebrate a holiday away from home for the first time. Like, there's a lot of very human things here that I can relate to. But at the same time, it's also like, wow, you really are nine years old. 
Yes. Like when you want with you what you want, it's like singular vision time. So with that, I feel like we need to get into this book. We do. This episode is brought to you by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships. What does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously, so we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well. If you're creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn. That's right. So just head over to podcorn.com and get started today. So I'm going to give us the rapid recap and Uh the way that these were released. This book actually also came out um, pretty, pretty soon after the other ones. I have a release date of January 1, um, 1986. And so I'm going to give us first the publisher's review and then a little bit more information, but there's not a lot of plot points, so it's not overwhelming. Kirsten and her family will be celebrating their first Christmas in America. Kirsten wants to keep some of their old Swedish traditions alive in the new country, so she secretly plans a St. Lucia celebration. But everything depends on a trip to town with Papa, and he's too busy to leave the farm. At last, they go and get caught in a terrible blizzard. It's up to Kirsten to keep herself and Papa safe through the night. When she finally gets home, the candles in the little cabin glow with a special holiday warmth. Um, A few other things you have to know. Kirsten is kind of playing both parents for the first third of this book, trying to get them invested in returning to Riverton to get the trunks back. Finally, she does pressure her father sufficiently, and they go out despite predictions of bad weather and despite offers from people to just stay in Riverton. They decide to make the trek back. Kirsten does sort of save the day um, after her father is injured trying to lead Blackie, their horse, because she offers him the respite of a cave that she discovered while she was out with Singing Bird or a place that Singing Bird showed to her that was part of her community before her family was starved (laughs) out. Um, All of this leads to Kirsten's kind of signature moment, I think, in my imagination, which is she pulls off a St. Lucia's Day surprise. Um, She puts together the iconic outfit. She has the candles and she has a tray of goodies that she brings out to the family. Yeah. So in a way, lots happening in this book. I mean, this is the iconic image of Kirsten. I think so. And I was kind of curious because, you know, the sore spot of my wintertime amusements if we thought that people were off the chain with what they were willing to pay for those, it is $15 just for one of the little candles, like the replica candles for your doll. If you want to get the larger packs, you're talking two, $300 for Kirsten stuff. Is this a joke? No, I'm very serious. So you could literally drop three, $400 trying to recreate this Christmas magic for you and your doll. By contrast, I got a Kirsten in a different outfit off of Mercari for $43. So that's a good lead if you want to buy a used Kirsten. We've had some people say, where can you get 
a good used Kirsten? I think it's all about the market. And now the fact that I've searched that, I've gotten several follow-ups from eBay, but this particular content is not inexpensive. And several people have branded their for sale Kirsten specifically in this outfit. Oh my God. Well, look, it is gorgeous. This is a beautiful look. I remember this is my prevailing image of Kirsten as well. I'm like gazing at the cover of this book right now. I mean, it's just gorgeous. And this is probably the outfit I wanted to wear when I had Kirsten. Never got it. But, you know, it does really make me reminisce about like First Communion stuff, which is also happens around the same age Kirsten's at, which is nine. And you wear a white dress for anyone out there who's familiar with that. And it has like a spiritual component. So in a way, it's kind of like a similar coming of age ritual, but it's also linked to Christmas and and family time. There's so many connections to both Felicity's surprise and Josefina's surprise. Um, First with Josefina, in both plot lines, the young girl and her father basically go on a date. Because the way that Kirsten's long sleigh ride with her father is described is really this very kind of like intimate domesticity that they have together. And they're kind of having this like romantic evening under the stars. And it's very similar to the way that Josefina's surprise and her family's kind of Christmas story was there was this fear that they wouldn't have the particular things that they needed to celebrate. There was kind of this dislocation and then there's this kind of closeness that she has with her father where they pretend to kind of be a couple in town yeah that was there's a lot of weird daddy daughter pioneer energy and i don't know if we want to get into this right now but you know i don't know if i want to call out janet shaw but you know like there is another series where there was not one but actually multiple plot lines in which a father goes on a trip with his daughter and then either gets sick or is in danger and the daughter has to save the day on the prairie uh would it be a christmas they never forgot mary uh guess what i never forgot i never forgot i mean if you can forget pie angles that's on you honestly karen grassel michael landon melissa gilbert we see you we hear you we still care about you we appreciate you rest rest in peace michael landon rest in peace Um, gone too soon both watching that christmas special many many times with my family and reading this book and other books that were about like harrowing experiences faced and overcome by young girls Mm -hmm. i have this distinct memory of thinking that i would need to be prepared for a blizzard scenario yeah 100 percent And it's like growing up with grandparents that lived through the depression, my grandmother in particular, was like, she was always prepping us for a doomsday situation where it was like, guess what? The bottom could fall out tomorrow. Like, you might have to take care of Pa on the prairie. And I was like, well, you know, I live in Connecticut and it's 1995, but okay, I'll, I'll entertain this. If you recall, not too long into our friendship, there was a really kind of strange freak storm that hit Connecticut and Rhode Island, and people lost power for actually at least a week in many places. And there was kind of this ahistorical argument of like, nobody knows how to live anymore without power. And it was like, well, no, our whole world has been structured to not supply us with the things that could be used in lieu of electricity. Yeah, exactly. I just keep flashing back to watching that Christmas story with Pa Ingalls, and it was like, whoa, Pa Ingalls is the coolest dad in the world. 
So if you don't remember the story, he basically takes a rope between the house and the barn and he makes sure that all the family's gifts are brought into the home and he battles this kind of epic blizzard. And once again, we have to give so much credit to the illustrator. She somehow makes all these beautiful scenes of them walking through the snow and the horse trying to lead the way, the father getting injured. They're just so beautifully depicted and it's hard to draw people people in a whiteout. Yeah, there's a really beautiful illustration on page 34 with the tagline, Kirsten has heard news, um, has heard stories about settlers who lost their way in blizzards. And you see, it's almost like you see them from above at a great distance and you can barely see them through um, the thickness of the snowfall. So it's beautifully rendered to illustrate just how intense that storm was and how terrifying it must have been to be walking through the snow. Um, But before we even get into them getting in the blizzard, we should talk about how they got there in the first place, which is that Kirsten does like ultimate parental manipulation. And there was actually a scene that was like so sad. It made me like take my breath away. Okay, there's a scene very in like the first scene of this book. Kirsten's with her mother in the kitchen and they're cooking together and she's making Christmas bread, which by the way, sounds amazing. Would love to try that. Kirsten has been missing Sari, her doll, which if we recall was left in the trunk that they couldn't afford to take with them when they walked the last part of the journey to Uncle Olaf's house. And so Kirsten is basically clocked that if we don't go pick up these wagons down in Marytown, is that where we're going? Riverton? Uh, Oh, sorry. We'll actually talk about this later because I did some digging. Yeah. Yeah. some, Some of our listeners helped us out. That's not a real place. But we can talk about that in depth because it matters later. Oh, okay, cool. And she basically wants to go do this, I guess, fictional place to get the wagons at a store where they're being held in storage. And in order to get her way, she's like, can't you please ask Papa? Like, can you make this happen? And she's like, you know that Papa has to close up the farm and get the house, everything ready for the winter. But if they don't go before the heavy snowfalls start, they won't be able to go there till spring because it will be so snowed over. She's wondering if Christmas is going to be the same as it was in Sweden. And she marvels, this is on page four and five, that basically things can hold memories. I'm trying to find the exact quote. On page six, um, Mama says, people are more important than things, Kirsten. Kirsten traced a heart shape in the flower on the table. You always say that, Mama, but things help me remember people too. When I wear my sweater from more and more, I can picture her knitting it for me. If I could see the Christmas cloths you both wove for the rafters, I'd feel like she was here with us. And basically, she knows exactly how to reach her mom, which is, you know, it's not going to work to say, hey, mom, can you force dad to go down to the store and get the trunk so that I can have my doll? Instead, she's like, mom, like, you know, things do help us remember people. Like, remember your mom who, you know, if I saw that cloth that you guys used to decorate, it would help me remember her. And at that point, um, that really reaches the mom. And she recalls like her final day with her mom saying goodbye to her before they leave. And she says, "Um, and how we all cried when we said goodbye, Mama whispered, we knew we would never see each other again. This scene is really heartbreaking. That broke me. Oh, my God. Something I love about it is I think in a way that Valerie Tripp also did very, very well. It's a scene that you feel immediately transported into, which is a mother and a daughter in a kitchen. But again, it's highly sensory. She does a beautiful job of talking about, you know, how it might smell with the bread. And then something she does a nice job of kind of dropping in and then we come back to it is that other people in their lives put lavender into the trunk. So it would smell pleasant when they opened it for the first time. Mm -hmm. I feel like we now live in like a lavender heavy 
world. And that's something that was immediately evocative for me as an adult. There's no way I really thought about that as a child. But now I was like, oh, yeah, that would be great if someone did that for me. Well, it's such like a very understated um, act of care for another person, like these small moments of kindness that demonstrate real love and affection. But just imagining that that could buy, like never seeing and so many people have gone through that and go through that of knowing that because of circumstance or whatever, that you're likely not going to see this love one again you know in your lifetime it's so it hits you right where you live because as you're saying it's so relatable I think too like all the time you know the way that we have connected differently with these stories and the different things that they conjure for us I do think there's a fundamental divide where we read these scenes a little bit differently because I was so into my dolls I do think I would have been on this same Kirsten path to get a doll back that mattered to me Mm -hmm. because like I connect to that as a particular object. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, is there something from your if you can reflect from your childhood that you would have gone through a blizzard to retrieve because it was so important to you? And do you have a different object from now? I think as a young person, I was very obsessed with like my photos. I loved my photos and I always had a lot of them in frames and photos are still important to me, but so much of that is digital now. I don't know that I would feel the same attachment. Um, I do think by the same token, so I have a small jewelry box and in it, I have a favorite Polaroid that someone snapped of me and my mother at a fair when I was young. Hmm. And then in the front, I have a photo of me and my husband from like 10 years ago. And then inside are my most important things. Like I have a coin purse that was my grandmother's during World War II and it has her OPA um, blue and red coins. Like that she would use for rations. Like it has all little things like that. That would probably be the tangible I would grab or my cat Raymond. (laughs) My God cat is last on your list. He's not last, but like I know he won't live forever. Whereas those OPA coins have already survived the Great War plus, you know, nearly a century of conflict since. Um So that would be an answer that is a little bit more enduring, but I would make Raymond a real priority. Wow. I have to hope that Raymond would save himself, but... Of course. I guess who knows. Yeah, I don't think it would be an American Girl doll for me then or now, but, um, you know, Grandma Fluffy, who's, like, very important to me, when I was a baby, she made me, like, a blanket that I've kept my whole life, and it's still, like, a very comforting thing to me, and it actually fell so far apart that at first she sewed another blanket onto the scraps that were left over and then ultimately sewed another blanket onto the other side. So the original was like sealed in the middle now. So probably that, or I have a box of things like cards and books that Anna has made me. But um, yeah, it's interesting to think about the things that we invest meaning in and memory in. Well, and like you're saying, she knows how to get to her mother exactly And she has this other agenda, which is she wants to have the things that she thinks they need to celebrate St. Luke's Day. And I think this is, again, very much like Josefina, where they are trying to put back together that beautiful piece that went on the mantle at the church Mm -hmm. um, between Christmas and Ascension. And I think what's smart is there's layers to the story where it's both about that object and it's not about that object just like with Felicity really desperately wanting that dress to go to the governor's ball, Mm -hmm. despite her mother being on a deathbed. (laughs) It's about the dress and it's about the doll, but it's also a way to kind of explore relationships between these people. 
Yeah, and I think it's also a way of like a touchstone navigating change. Like in all of these instances, like these girls are navigating traumas that have happened previously or things that are happening in the present and, and also just like growing older and trying to understand that process. But, you know, for Felicity, there's the weirdness or like the discomfort for her of having to be called on to kind of play mom in the family while the mom is sick. And so she kind of has to find a way to kind of restore the family or, or um, restore order in the midst of this like unexpected change and the same with Josefina and with Kirsten like having to take care of her dad but also in a broader way before that like trying kind of almost like in a wish fulfillment way of like if I just make this holiday what it was in Sweden I can you know like trick myself into thinking that my entire life and world have not changed which of course it has. It has been shocking the degree to which the surprise in these books because clearly we just misremembered is less a way that someone surprises them and a way that they kind of create a surprise in life right yeah I mean I think that's what I meant earlier by saying I don't really know if I'd want to go to invite her to my party because she might create kind of a firestorm around herself just because she could or because maybe she needed that chaos in order to affect some kind of comfort in her life or solve something. And I don't really know if I really want to be a party to that. Although I will say her friends, or in, or aka her cousins in this book, are willing conspirators from the jump. And one of my favorite quotes in any American Girl book is in this book. And it's on page 15. And it's around that um, illustration that you love, Allison, I think, or it's in that ballpark region of the book. It yeah, is. The, on page 13, there's a beautiful illustration of Kirsten with um, Anna and Lisbeth hanging out in the barn. And do you want to describe this image because you love it so much? It's everything I want in life. So she has no other commitments. She's hanging out. She doesn't quite have her real doll back, but they're hanging out with their dolls. They're hanging out with their toys. They're having a chat about the holiday season and they're surrounded by kittens. It's wonderful. It's a beautiful image. It's so it's it's like, wow, what a dream. Um, But on the on page 15, just two pages later, uh, when they're talking about potentially doing a surprise St. Lucia Day, Anna, there's this great quote that says, Anna's round face glowed with excitement. We'll keep it a secret. Oh, I love secrets. And it's like, yeah, me too. <laughs> like, I just, that that hit me. I was like, wow, yes, relatable content. Because they're kind of like, you know, as the saying goes, like sitting crooked and talking straight, you know, it's like, all right, real talk. We're in the barn. There is something that I think you couldn't possibly latch onto as a child, which is she and these cousins are trying to kind of make this holiday magic in part because the parents are very worried about their survival, which is a very real concern. You know, someone in her life, um, I'm going to call this the second body in her growing body count of former friends, has had to leave because of fear of starvation. Her first friend died of a disease we won't name. She's not pictured in this book. Um, and now it's like she's trying to make the best of what she has, which is cousins for friends. She's like, guys, this has to work. <laughs> it is it is kind of true. And, you know, like sometimes with your cousins, it is a weird relationship where sometimes they're your age or thereabouts. And they're kind of forced friends. And a lot of times it can turn into really great relationships. Like I have cousins with whom I'm very close. But um, sometimes it is kind of awkward. Where it's like, wow, like my friends are dead and or missing AWOL. I mean, I will say Kirsten's, you know, she has a lot of memory invested in material objects. She doesn't have a lot of memory invested in these friendships, this book. 
we're not hearing about Marta, RIP. I'm afraid to even say her name on this show because it's it's too soon for me. I'm upset. Marta is missing. Um, Miss Winston is still around. She's doing great. She She's helps great out work. with the conspiracy. She's wonderful. I learned something actually really shocking about this holiday. Yes. Well, two shocking things. So you went through more of a saint obsession period than I did. That was kind of a, a childhood chapter that you had. Yeah. So I had to do some research into St. Lucia because I didn't know a lot. Um, and particularly in the Swedish tradition, they focus on slightly different things than other people who have claimed her. Um, but she was a martyr who was bringing food to persecuted Christians. And the tradition is that she had to wear candles on her head for light so that she had more ways um, to maneuver the food, which feels like very much not a real story. But I'm fine. I mean, with it that's for how the- a lot of the saint stories go. It's just like, <laughs> it's a great story. Don't ask questions. Keep it moving. Well, and it makes sense that there would be a feast of light this time of year because it's on the day with the least amount of light. So they right. go for the darkest day, the solstice. Um, so it's a nice pagan kind of crossover. But here's what's shocking that I learned. The time period in which this is set, it's actually pretty unlikely that she would have been celebrating this holiday because it's not till the late 19th century that this really gets galvanized in Swedish and Scandinavian traditions this way. Second point, I learned that probably where this, I know it's shocking, probably where this came from in the context of this book is when people in the late 20th century, um, starting in like the 60s and 70s, wanted to have like cultural festivals like we've talked about before. It was in Kansas and other parts of the Midwest that people kind of picked this up as being critical to Swedish American identity. And that's where it comes from, Janet. Oh my God. And it's, it's actually very much like into Kwanzaa in a book by Elizabeth Hawkin Pleck called Celebrating the Family, where it's really more of like an American invention and modification of other traditions. Right. And I mean, there's such a storied history of that for so many different cultural traditions that are still with us today. But at, at least in some ways, there's varying levels of consciousness of that. And I guess mm-hmm. I had no consciousness that this was so Americanized. In the way that it's presented, it's definitely a Swedish tradition. Um, But in the period that she would have moved to the Midwest, the chances of her, again, like really learning English are not great. And by the same token, this hadn't really been crystallized as a tradition the way it's presented here. So let me, this brings me to what I think is the natural next question. When do you think Yankee Candle got to Janet Shaw? Oh my God. Honestly, sometimes I think like, you know how to reach me where I live, and then you bring up Yankee Candle on a school night? (laughs) You're going to be up all night now. I know it's like your real love affair. Like, honestly, because I knew we were going to have different different reactions to this. One of my jobs as a child was we always had electric candles put in every single window. Same. And one of my jobs would be to turn all of those on because it's a very like quaint New England thing. I loved that she got to literally play with fire, have a tray of coffee and baked goods, which I imagined to be like better sticky buns than they were. I was like, yeah, this is my dream. And also the fact that she's wearing like a crisp white dress with a high collar. I love that. See, that's where you live in this book. For me, it was the lavender because as you know, like I did text our one of our group chats this week and just said, no context, should I call 911 on myself? Because I came across this article that's like, are you a 90s Vasco girl? 
V-S-C-O. Yes. And I'm like showing my age because I have to spell it. And I'm like, I'm still feeling out this concept and seeing if I get it. But it was all these questions about like, did you do this in 90s culture? And I think one of them was like, do you wear Bath and Body Works? Did you wear Bath and Body Works fragrances? And it's like, did I past tense? Do I present tense? Will I future tense? Yes. Moonlight Path is a lifestyle. Not going to apologize. I will never stop. And I feel like if you actually know me as a person in IRL, it's like if I'm out to eat and I don't have one of my pocket hand sanitizers, that is your cue that I have been kidnapped. Yeah. I mean, there's probably several other cues, but yeah, that's up there. Like if I don't have those, because you know what? They're five for $6, which is a really good deal. And then your hands always smell pleasant. And they had Prince themed scents for a while. And I really appreciated that. RIP, gone too soon. Purple rain. But they're not paying us. So I will take it back to Yankee Candle, a different company also not paying us. And it's like, couldn't you just imagine the pitch meeting where they're like, hey, we'd love to reach out to some younger consumers and get them to hassle their parents, a la Kirsten and her parents for these trunks into buying some candles. Well, the other thing that people have pointed out is that this is also very much in line with the broader ways that people are kind of like it's easy to see now that these books are trying to get you to buy a doll right if you look at the original pleasant company logo it's a young woman um in silhouette and next to her is the shadow of a doll because i have a very old version of this book um I loved reading reviews of this. Um, A woman named Rebecca with a K writes alternate title, the one where she gets her doll. (laughs) And this is, I mean, but this is true also of both Josefina and of Felicity. When you think back, that beautiful doll who gets the matching dress in Felicity and with Josefina, there's the entire controversy with Clara over both the sewing implement and what was it, Nina? Yep, Nina. I also loved like, again, love it. Like I say this like sincerely out of appreciation because we do the same. A woman named Lorraine, an adult, wrote this review. Homesick, Kirsten so much wants her rag doll and otherworldly belongings still packed in trunks and awaiting retrieval when Kirsten's father can spare time to travel. A proper celebration of St. Luce's Day hinges on the trunks, but the trip is fraught with adventure when she and her father are lost in a blizzard. Educational and full of danger that's an accurate description of this book i just am a little bit troubled by the fact that this is at least the second if not the third if we're counting felicity caring for her mother situation in which parents have to be cared for by children and i understand that it it allows kirsten and josefina to come to the forefront of a story by making them kind of like the hero But I do wonder at this, and it also reveals other weird family dynamics, which is that actually Kirsten is keeping many secrets from her parents. Yes. And and they're all singing bird related because when they're, so they go to the store, they get the trunk, they're coming back. The snow is like torrential downpour at this point. Like it's a blizzard. And we didn't get into this, but the family horse is named Blackie. Could have literally taken any other choice on that one. Yeah. Like literally any other choice. And Kirsten volunteers to, the dad sprains his knee. He can't lead the horse. The horse is scared. So someone has to go out and actually lead it by the bridle. And Kirsten does it. And she recognizes where they are enough to know that she's near a cave that Singing Bird told her about that her tribe used during hunting. So not only did she know that there would be a cave there, but there would also be dry wood in there that they could use to light a fire. 
the dad is like, how did you even know this place was here? And she's like, oh, who, me? Like, I don't know. I just wandered around and like kicked around and found this cave. But it's like, in a sense, it's like that scene shows us that she lies to the dad. She's also erasing an entire group of people, one of whom was her friend and and shared with her this knowledge that has actually saved their lives most likely. So it's just a very weird scene. I feel like this is where this book shows the difference between like 80s and 90s prevailing philosophies of parenting. Because if this was set in the mid to late 90s, totally different. So page 44 is where this scene happens. And so the dad takes off his boots. They're trying to heat up. They're trying to make sure they don't have frostbite. And he asks her, when did you come to this cave? Because Kirsten didn't want to tell him about Singing Bird and the Indians, she said, I was exploring and I found it. He asks her, did you have permission to be so far from the farm? No, I wandered farther than I thought. And the dad is like, well, I'm glad you're a little explorer. I'm sorry, this is not how this would have been handled in pretty much any other situation. And the thing that I actually found most troubling about this book, she takes a cinnamon and sugar cube that she was gifted at the store, which also gave me very much Little House vibes, puts it on her tongue, yep. lays back, and yep. goes to sleep in a cave. I thought the same And I was thing. like, honey, Dr. Heimlich is not here to help you. Nope. Your dad is clearly like out of his depths at this point, and he's injured. No one is going to help you. Like, Dr. Oz does not have the address to that cave and also maybe not a medical license at this point. Who knows? But it's bad. And also, I would just say this is the second book in which a girl identifies with a horse because at different times in this book, she also is basically... The dad compliments Kirsten by saying, you must have heart, Kirsten. And then when she actually leads them home, he's like, yeah, she had heart. You have heart just like your mom. But Kirsten is identifying with the horse and is like, have heart, Blackie, like when the horse doesn't want to go in the snow. And it's like anytime a girl in this or any book that closely identifies with a horse, you have to like, you know, you're in the danger zone. Can I just say this, though? Like we give our car pep talks. Yeah. Well, especially when I was driving a Saturn, that was like a daily occurrence just for my own (laughs) safety. Like, please, I would lean forward going up hills like, come on, I know you want to do this. No, like we kind of caught a lot of fraught elements, but I have to say people really love this book. And I just want to quote reader Elise, I'm not crying, you're crying. Okay, I'm crying. When Kirsten and Papa get home and they open up the trunk with all their most precious possessions from Sweden, waterworks, period. You know what this, the ending of this book made me think about, which is also a 90s Um, I would say important cultural artifact about the history of immigration and moving to the Midwest. And, you know, of course, I'm talking about Fifle Goes West. And there's a song in that movie called Somewhere Out There that reduces me to tears, like a puddle of tears every time I hear it, then and now. And it's like all of this stuff about like separation and distance. And this book, that's where I think its emotional core is, like kind of grieving the loss 
of the life you had before you left home, but also the people you left behind. And also kind of like the bittersweet joy of finding happiness in your new life. Like I think they do genuinely, like they're so exhausted when she actually is home safely. She must have physically been absolutely exhausted, Mm -hmm. but still has the energy to do this surprise for the joy of her family. And they take such joy in it, but it's it's such like mixed joy. Like it's not what they are used to. But it's almost more fulfilling in a way because they've managed to make this happen even in more trying circumstances. I I do think part of what's powerful is she feels like it's a different holiday now that they're here. And she has to explain to the cousins what St. Lucia's Day is because they don't really remember. And I think what's been really kind of gratifying and interesting and hearing from people is people really do connect with this part of the story where she has, exactly as you're saying, this story of having traveled and having come to a new place. Um, Connie, who's a listener and a writer for Refinery29, grew up in Minnesota. So she kind of connects with this a few different ways. Um, But she wrote to us saying, my Chinese parents thought that spending that much money on a doll was ludicrous. And so I only had the library books and the catalog. But I identified so strongly with the Kirsten books She was a new immigrant who didn't speak English and was eager to be American, but was also confused by that compulsion. She was poor, but proud of the fact that she could do without. In a way, me never getting that doll, but also kind of owning the fact was the most Kirsten thing about me. Hmm. Um, And so she had a lot of friends who literally looked like Kirsten, who had these same kinds of backgrounds. And she says, I tried loot fix before I tried sushi. Hmm. There were over 20 students in my graduating class with the name of Larson, including a Kirsten Larson, and everyone owned a Kirsten doll. Hmm. So even in this story, which I think if you wanted to only take a certain angle of it or a very kind of like one way academic reading of course, this book is there to encourage you to associate with dolls, to want to buy and have dolls. And at the same time, this person found all these other meanings while still connecting with it. Mm, totally. I think it's kind of gets back to that theory that people talk about in literature, which is kind of like the author is dead. So in other words, after mm-hmm. somebody writes a book, whatever wish or hope or intention they had for their own book doesn't matter anymore. It's dead because the readers get to read their own readings back into it. So it's really powerful for that, that for this reader, she was able to kind of create her own really unique meaning and something that was probably not intended by Pleasant Company, but in some ways, like so much more of an interesting story. Yeah. I also wanted to just point out because several people wrote to us with really helpful information about a Minnesota context, and they have really validated the fact that this was a particularly important book for people from that part of the country. Um, But we've also gotten a lot more information about indigenous culture and the way that indigenous people are represented. Listener Melissa um, wrote to us and said, you may already know this, which we didn't, Um, But specifically regarding Minnesota and the Dakota tribe, um, Mankanto, Minnesota was home to the largest mass execution in U.S. history. And that would have actually happened when Kirsten was about our age in 1862. Um, So not too far off. Um, Other people also wrote to us that there's like this whole other context, which is that um, 
listener Lauren wrote to us and said that she's become obsessed with Riverton, which same. Um, it is a real small town um, and it's in Crow Wing County, um, but she thinks it's actually a different town than mm. what is being described based on the geography. And she writes to us, settler colonists first formed towns near Fort Snelling and in southern Minnesota, whereas current day Riverton is pretty far north um, to have any sort of organized town and she can't find a record of it being that old. Also, the books mention Kirsten being on a prairie, which point more towards modern-day Minneapolis-St. Paul. Um, She says, Riverton is a made-up town. Molly and Samantha's towns were also made up, so that tracks. And I was trying really hard to find the town that they travel to for the store, and that is definitely made up. Wow, I wonder why. I don't know. I don't know if it would be because it would force them into having... So I think of this like I do first-person interpretation, and I would always rather do a composite than a real person, because if I'm doing a real person, I get it right or I get it wrong. That makes sense, though, as an identity, but what about locating it in a space? Like, they put so much emphasis on making things true to the period and realistic Mm -hmm. in really admirable ways. So why wouldn't it just serve that mission to locate this in an actual town? I understand like not basing it on an actual person because that's very limiting in a way, in a way that a composite lets you tell a different story. But why not have it in a real town? Well, I think part of this, I really do think part of this relates to that specific indigenous history that's coming out. Mm. Um, When you think of the way that slavery was represented in Felicity, there was kind of a deliberate obliviousness in Mm. some ways with how that was represented. I think with this, they're kind of hiding in plain sight in terms of how they represent indigenous people without a lot of specificity. Um, An archaeologist named Mara who wrote to us, and wanted to pass along some other information was saying today there's a huge controversy which we did sort of know about with the minnesota historical society trying to rename fort snelling which is another real place interesting right that would have existed in her orbit um that was part of the traditional homeland of the dakota so again all of these things are overlapping with her timeline with her place but we're not given the actual specifics where we could say, okay, so this is her setting. Like but, they can kind of hide. But in a way, like if you think about it, the setting of this book actually doesn't hide the dynamics or it's barely hidden because Singing Bird and her family have and, and her people have been erased off the land. Mm-hmm. But even in their erasure, they're still depicted as being helpful or helpers of white people which is a common trope among the way that indigenous people are depicted, particularly in children's literature. They exist to help the main white character. So, of course, like Singing Bird in her absence is still present only to help Kirsten find the cave. But also I think it's really telling that when there's been a lot of interesting writing about um, trauma and its relationship to land and the ways that trauma can be generational and be based in environments. Um, But thinking about how this is actually a history of whiteness in book three, In books one and two, you can clearly see that white people and settler colonialism have traumatized indigenous folks. The only thing traumatizing white people in these books so far is the weather. Yeah. In book three, at least. I mean, in other books, we see disease and, you know, obviously the trials and tribulations of technology and travel and all these things they're not used to. But in book three, it's literally weather. That's the only thing they're up against. 
Well, and I keep thinking because I genuinely don't remember, like, is Singing Bird coming back? Uh, I hope so. I can't take another nine-year-old death in the in this series. I'm not over Marta. Actually, at the end, I was thinking it would be kind of an interesting fan fiction or alternate ending if Kirsten literally went, was like, I'm going to go change into the outfit and next when you see me, I'll be like doing my St. Lucia thing and she actually goes up and falls like lays down on her bed for a second and falls asleep as you do sometimes when you're that tired and then somebody comes down in a dress wearing the candles and people are like oh it's Kirsten and it's like no it's Marta like ghost story I love that do you think that there's like a kind of dark noir tradition in Minnesota like can people tell us if there is I would love to know. I mean, Minnesota to me is such an awesome place. As I said, I've been there. I would like to spend more time in St. Paul because I was mainly in Minneapolis. But also when I was there, Prince was still with us and Paisley Park is now a museum. So I would love to go back because it also has like a really awesome punk tradition and all kinds of really cool um, traditions in Minnesota. So in my mind, you know, a lot of people I know who know nothing of Minnesota, the only thing they know about it is the Mall of America, which is fine but um there's so much other stuff there that's like geez it's a really cool spot i would love to know well you know there was so much backlash against minnesota historical and them wanting to change the name of fort snelling to better reflect and to honor the indigenous history there and i mean to me that's like that's five points in the positive category like right. that makes me want to visit um And if I may, I think it's just important to point out. So, you know, you never want to like needlessly timestamp when you record an episode. But historically, November is Indigenous History Month, correct? Mm -hmm. Um, So this week, there was actually an announcement that it's going to be rebranded. Did you hear about this? Unfortunately, yes. But say more. Um, So as of this week, there was a move to make this National American History and Founders Month, which is every month because we only have those people on our money and as our main figureheads. Um, So I would say that that can go to the same place as most of those $5,000 dolls, which is to the category (laughs) of needless changes in our society. Right. Or Kanye's co-opting and capitalist embrace of gospel music. That can go um ken burns mansplaining country music that can go can i just say this like kanye should never tease a breakfast that he can't provide <laughs> listen we all live through Firefest. here's the thing kirsten has nothing going for her except whiteness in this book yeah she puts on a darn good breakfast she did yep I feel like part of where she won me over is the scene where she's just plowing into a plate of pancakes. And I was like, we could hang. We've all been there. I mean, I would have respected her more if it was waffles, but you know, I completely am with her 110%. Breakfast is, is an appropriate meal at any time of the day. And the fact that Kanye charged $50 for something that could have been passable as a Firefest meal is such a is such a embarrassment like we both take breakfast food extremely seriously this is wrong here's what kirsten likes carbs mm-hmm. cats yep candles candles friends sometimes <laughs> friends secret friends <laughs> yeah friends when they serve her yeah i do have one last thing to tell you that i think is really important i'm with you A listener reached out and she told us that based on her very careful calculation and study, Miss Winston is 19 years old. (laughs) What? In my mind, she's like a cool 27. 
I love that for her. I, you know what? I can't have her be the same age as Amos because to me, like, I need this, like, almost like Mary Kay Letourneau situation, like, not illegal, but like age difference. Well, I think maturity wise, they're a mile apart. So you're fine. Like, if they don't end up married, I'm going to be really upset. Because I feel like we've almost explicitly been told in these books that that's where this is going. I feel like you're also going to be upset if they do get married. Yeah, it's probably not going to be great for me either way. But I just want the like the validation that I was right, even if I don't want to be right. You know what I mean? You know who's going to throw her a great bridal shower? Who? Kirsten. Oh, my God. Well, she will until she stopped. Like, what if she graduates and then she doesn't need Miss Winston anymore? So then it's like, well, you know, somebody's like, oh, are you going to invite Singing Bird? who (laughs) um i don't think they're gonna play any songs about boston or dirty water at any of these events they probably shouldn't too triggering too triggering for everybody involved i mean november rain would that work no (laughs) too soon too soon (laughs) wow 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 i have no idea where we're going with these books allison I don't either, but I can't wait for the next story because it allows us to talk about one of our favorite topics, which is we're going to get into another springtime baby with happy birthday, Kirsten. Oh, God. One of the moms, Prego? No, she's going to have a birthday. I thought you were just saying the mom was pregnant. I was like, I can't have another like frontier baby, like, you know, almost like when Felicity's mom was pregnant. That was very stressful for me. No, I mean, we all lived through the roller coaster of her birthing Polly at the plantation. We all remember that. I can't. It's too soon. I get too nervous about that. I mean, look, listen, maternal care is fraught enough in 2019 in the United States, so I don't want to deal with like 1854 right now. But okay, I'm always here for a birthday story. I love a birthday story. If people have Kirsten intel that you need them to send to you, where should they find you? Okay, I would like very specific intel from our listeners. So I refuse to watch Ken Burns' country music documentary, but I would love to know what happens on there to know if my assumptions are correct. So please reach out to me on Twitter at MaryMahoney123 or on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney. Okay, and if you want to write to us, you can reach to us at AmericanGirlsPod at gmail.com. We love to hear from you there. And thank you sincerely to everyone who has filled out the Google form and called our hotline. Those have both been awesome. You can find out about that on our website at American Girls Podcast. Um, you can also reach us on Instagram at American Girls Podcast, or you can reach us at a girls pod on Twitter. All right. Well, thank you again to everyone who's reached out to us. We so appreciate it. We love this community of people that you know we get to talk to. Um, And until next time, you know, we can't wait to see you for our next birthday party. And don't drink out of contaminated wells. Oh, God, please don't.